If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Set of the show. We're now into April, and April is going to be a pivotal month uh, in in getting a better understanding of of how soon we can start to come out of this and and how bad it's going to be. Obviously, Canada has not yet peaked, so we don't know what it is we're going to be dealing with necessarily in a week or two weeks or three weeks or when we'll know uh, whether we've hit the peak and and are starting to to see this subside. So April is really going to be pivotal, both in terms of of keeping a, a, a handle on this as much as we can, but also in terms of learning more about this virus and, and you know, getting ahead of the game when it comes to testing as well. So that certainly this month is going to be pivotal, uh, even looking beyond April. So I wanted to talk a bit more uh, about where we're at, how we judge uh, the success of our measures so far, what more we're beginning to learn about this uh, this virus as well, uh, as we continue to study it closely. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bokoc. Uh, he's an infectious disease specialist, also a, cl- a clinician investigator with Toronto General Hospital Research Institute, University of Toronto as well. Dr. Bogoch, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. One thing I want to ask you about, I saw you, you quoted about this today, the question of, of reporting numbers. And, you know, typically what we're seeing for most jurisdictions is confirmed cases. I know Quebec is, is also including presumed cases along with confirmed cases. What's your sense in, in terms of the best way of, of trying to get a handle on, on what the situation is and how best to, to convey that to Canadians? Yeah, I think we should, you know, the more data, the better, as long as we're putting this data in the appropriate context. So, you know, one of the obvious measurements is, you know, how many cases do we have? You know, and, and you know, that we, we have a good test. We know if those are positive tests, we, we have positive cases and, and those are counted. And that's, that's helpful. That's extremely helpful. But it's also helpful to have a good understanding about, you know, how many tests are being done, how many, you know, what percentage of tests are being positive. Uh, and, you know, how many people might have a suspected case or a probable case? Maybe they have compatible signs and symptoms, but they didn't get a test for some reason. Uh, and it's just, it's just you know, all of this paints a picture of, you know, what is the true burden of illness in the country and also in, you know, in various regions as well. And, you know, again, it's not, there's not going to be one data point that's going to solve all the answers and that's going to answer all of our questions. But mm-hmm. taken collectively, it'll paint a picture about how we're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, Canada is doing a lot of testing, which I think is encouraging here in Alberta. We, we seem to be uh, a leader in that sense. But, you know, different provinces and different jurisdictions have different testing priorities. And so it, it's it, we're not necessarily comparing apples to apples then in that sense. If we look at other underlying data, if we look at, at hospitalizations or, or even tracking the number of deaths, is that also a, a way of, of measuring what kind of a, a problem we're dealing with? Yeah, 100%. I think those are also extremely, extremely useful uh, uh, metrics to, to measure. And the, the other good metric as well is uh, number of intensive care unit beds available and occupancy of those intensive care unit beds 
as well. And again, there's not going to be one metric that that answers all the questions. It's going to be a, a you know a conglomerate that really paints the picture. But yeah, I mean, your other point is spot on as well. I mean, I'm calling you from downtown Toronto, but I'm from Calgary originally, and I grew up there, and I'm. Uh, you know, obviously still very proud to, to have Alberta roots. And, you know, Alberta has really been leading the way with the, uh, with the diagnostic testing. This has been absolutely fantastic uh, to watch. And, and, you know, sadly, where I am now in Ontario, uh, you know, we're, we're doing a little bit of catch-up over here. But, you know, when we're thinking about these per capita, tests per capita, we're still, we were a bit slow out of the gate. And, uh, you know, uh, luckily, I mean, this obviously isn't a contest. We want all provinces to do well. Uh, But luckily, some of the slower provinces are are catching up. And, and, you know, we're starting to see the expansion of diagnostic testing uh, throughout the country, which is going to be extremely helpful. I mean, that's really one of the main pillars, one of the pillars of of getting this under control. I think the other thing to caution, too, is we've got to be careful about interpreting our daily numbers uh, and the daily number of new cases, because this can get a little murky when we're doing a, a large number of diagnostic tests. We sometimes aren't just seeing the new cases, but we could be accounting for cases that have been around for a while uh, that, that are now turning up positive. So, you know, I think, as you pointed out earlier, the next couple of weeks are really going to be crucial to see what direction this is taking. Yeah, and that's what's so tricky about this virus, right? I mean, there's the incubation period, which can can really vary. I mean, it can be just a few days, maybe even up to two weeks, we think. Uh, and then even once someone starts to display symptoms, uh, you know, the, the the disease can run can run a lot of different directions. And and one day someone might seem as though they have mild symptoms, then they can take a turn for the worse. So so the the process from you know initial infection uh, all the way to a point where someone may need to be hospitalized that that's you know maybe two to three weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, it certainly can be. And, you know, it might be a little shorter than that, but it, the, the point is, uh, I think your point is spot on, right? Just because someone is, has the infection, it doesn't mean that those numbers of new cases are going to be accounting for what we're going to see in the hospital. And there can be a bit of a delay because uh, it does take some time. And, you know, there's some good data we get, we have from other parts of the world that have, you know, a, a larger number of infected people and a larger clinical and public health experience with this. And, and some of the data I thought was interesting for, from the time of symptom onset to the time of death on average is about uh, two and a half to three weeks on average. So, you know, and it's, 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 these are tough things to talk about, but it takes time for people to get sick and it takes time for, uh, not for everybody, but it does take time for some people to get sick and for them to worsen and then for them to get hospitalized and then for, to deteriorate and then to require an intensive care unit. So even though uh, we might start seeing hopefully, hopefully a plateau mm-hmm. and a reduction in the number of new cases per day, it still doesn't necessarily reflect what our hospital resources are going to be like. And there can be a bit of a delay between uh, the cases that are detected and what we're seeing in the hospitals. And in terms of understanding, you know, the the spread of this virus and, you know, one of the interesting questions that you you linked to a study, in fact, today looking at uh, some some data out of Singapore, uh, where we do know that that asymptomatic individuals can can shed virus, can can spread the virus. I mean, more typically, I think it's spread through droplets, through cough, sneezes, that sort of thing. But but what is it about this virus that, that makes it so tricky? Why are asymptomatic people able to spread this? Well, let's be let's be clear here for a couple. It's important to clarify a couple of points. The study you're talking about from Singapore looked at what we would call pre-symptomatic people. So these are people oh, okay. that had the infection that were about to get sick, but about one or two days before they got sick, they were shedding the virus. And that's actually seen with a lot of other upper respiratory tract viruses and viruses that replicate in the upper part of the respiratory tract instead of the lower respiratory tract uh, will, will do this uh, with with ease. So so you know someone might feel well. 
and then they're interacting with other people and they can infect other people. And then a few days later, they, they get sick, but they're shedding some virus for a day or two before they get sick. So that's called pre-symptomatic. And it's important because they, they feel well at the time. Um, and then the, your other point, too, I think is there's a, I think there's a better word for it. There's just because there's a lot of people who have this infection who just aren't that sick. I know, sadly, we know lots of people get sick. Sadly, we know there's Canadians and people around the world succumbing to this illness. But actually, a lot of people get this infection and don't even need to go to the hospital. They just sort of recover in the comfort of their own home. And some people don't even feel sick enough to seek medical care. We call these patients subclinical. And that's a big umbrella term that describes, you know, minor, minor symptoms or people that just aren't sick enough to, seek, to, to reach that threshold of seeking medical care. So if you don't even suspect that you have this or you're not seeking medical care, you're not, you, you could be walking around in the community, you know, infecting other people. So this is why our physical distancing measures are so important. But I think the other, and, and there's estimates about, you know, is there 20% or 25% of people that are subclinical, meaning they just don't feel well enough to seek medical care. And that's an important factor here. But I think the the uh, the opposite is also important. If there's you know 75% of people that have overt symptoms and they're coughing out a lung, whether or not they're in hospital or not, they have overt right. symptoms. They're also transmitting this infection. It's a respiratory virus. These are easy to transmit. They transmit through droplets, as you point out, but they also transmit it through contact, which is probably the more common scenario where you know surfaces get contaminated. Someone touches the surface, it gets it on their hand. Uh, and then they touch their mouth, their nose, their eyes, and they can infect themselves. So this is why hand hygiene is so important and why uh, physical distancing measures are really important as well. Yeah, so as you say, there, there's a crucial difference there between, as you say, subclinical or even pre-symptomatic and, and truly asymptomatic individuals. Uh, yeah. Without comprehensive and, and even random testing of the population, there's probably no way really to quantify how many individuals you know would truly be asymptomatic, somebody who had this virus and, and really didn't notice anything, displayed no symptoms at all. Do we have any kind of estimates about what, what that category might represent? Is there any way to it's know? It's hard to know. No, nah, we know there's some people, but it's hard to know exactly. And like, you know, it's funny. I don't mean to get overly academic and pardon the ivory tower medicine here for a second, but it seems that asymptomatic in the medical world means something completely different than asymptomatic in in the real world. And and and, and I, I I'm really I, I need to take a hard look in the mirror because I'm the one in the wrong. But in the medical world, asymptomatic means you truly have zero symptoms. You are at your baseline level of function. There is nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would hazard to guess that, you know, if we talk about people who are categorized as asymptomatic and you took a second year medical student from the University of Calgary, which is a great medical school, by the way, and sat them down with that patient and they really did a thorough history and physical exam. You know, I would say that many, not everyone, but many of the people who are categorized as asymptomatic probably have some mild symptoms. And this is why I think the term subclinical is probably a more important term. Um, And again, I'm the one who's in the wrong because this is purely academic. This is, it's it's not a practical thing. Like who cares? At the end of the day, who cares? The point is, the point is these are people are not sick enough to recognize that they have symptoms. They're not sick enough to recognize they have this infection. They're not sick enough to seek medical care. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, in the hashtag words matter era, you know, asymptomatic really should mean what asymptomatic means. Uh, so I get a little <laughs> uppity about that. But on the but on the other hand, but on the other hand, you know, it, I think subclinical is probably the the, the best term because it really does um, it does really reflect what uh, what's going on. 
Yeah. No, and I think that that's a good explanation of it. Uh, obviously, though, too, I mean, I, I think these issues about, you know, how the virus is spread, you know, we get into to the, the conversation around masks and, and whether it makes sense for people to wear masks, whether masks can make any kind of a difference. Obviously, masks can create their own risks in, in other ways, too. And you, you've seen a lot of back and forth on this, obviously, amongst uh, <laughs> yeah. folks in the general public, amongst folks in the medical and scientific community. Where, yeah. where do you come oh down on that? Oh, my God. What a mess. I mean, I don't want to get into it. It's so annoying. You know, I really think that it's hard to be dogmatic on both sides, and I'm not making any friends with this one, but that's okay. We're not here to make friends. I really think public health messaging, and at least people in public health, they should stop being dismissive and at least recognize that there is some evidence. Not a lot, and it's terrible, but there is some evidence. I'm not saying it's good evidence. Maybe, maybe masks can be a little bit helpful, okay? Mm-hmm. But but on the flip side, I think there's this mask crowd that is, you know, really um, not, how do I put it politely? I mean, there really is a very vigorous pro-mask crowd. And at the end of the day, listen, whatever you, you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. That's great. I mean, do what you do what you feel is necessary. I just, I don't want people to have a false sense of security that if they put on a mask, they're going to be okay. And you also have to start to think, you know, if people are really physically distancing, like truly physically distancing from another, you have to really think about what the utility of the mask is in these situations and how helpful it'll be. And we really have to ask a couple of questions. You know, are you wearing a mask to prevent you from getting an infection? Or are you wearing a Are we all wearing the question, if everyone puts on a mask, can we reduce the risk of transmission in community settings? And these are sort of related, but not yeah. entirely related questions. So think it's important to at least be cognizant that there are people digging in their heels on both sides of this and that the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Uh, so as we look uh, to, to the days and weeks ahead here, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll be getting a better sense maybe this week, next week, as to how effective our, our measures over the past few weeks have been. But what, what are the, some of the important indicators you're going to be watching for? Uh, number of new cases per day. That's the biggie. I really want to yeah. see a reduction in the number of new cases per day. I want to see. Um, I want to see. And I'm really looking at the ICU beds as well, because oh, that's a finite resource. I mean, that is still a very limited resource, and uh, those would be the two ones I'm looking for. And obviously, we want to see a reduction in the, a sustained reduction in the number of new cases per day. I think that's 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 going to be huge, uh, and 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 that's the the big thing. That's the elephant in the room here, and we'll know if we're flattening our curve if uh, if we really start to see a sustained reduction. In the number of new cases per per day, and obviously not just at the Canada level, but also at, at all the provinces. And you know, maybe there's some early signs in Alberta and BC, maybe, uh, but uh, but I'd love to see this across the board. Well, let's hope so. Uh, we'll continue watching it closely, Doctor Bogach. Appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks for making some time for us here. Anytime. Have a great day. You as well. All right, there you go. Some interesting observations uh, from Dr. Isaac Bogach. He's an infectious disease specialist uh, with Toronto General Hospital Research Institute, also with the University of Toronto. Our number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. Back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.